The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To commemorate the end of summer and the beginning of school, here are a few of my favorite sayings from El Arroyo's marquee sign throughout the summer. Here's one especially for you students because you're going back to school. Got to start using your brains again. One day it read, thanks for teaching me the meaning of plethora. It means a lot. There it is. Get it? Okay. Here's one for you parents uh, to commemorate the end of summer. One day it read, I'm so tired of babysitting my mom's grandkids which happens, it happens to us all. And then here's one for those of us who thought we were going back to work after COVID, and we're not. Work from home tip, blow on the margarita in your mug so your coworkers think that it's coffee. There's a tip for you. And also, last one, I don't always whoop, but when I do, there it is. And that's because I went to high school in the 1990s. So. I share those with you to highlight what, some of what's happening here in our passage from Acts that Gail just read to you. In the middle of it, Luke, the author sneaks in some comic relief in an otherwise frightening, disturbing story, a violent story. In the middle of it, this servant girl named Rhoda, she's so overjoyed that, that Peter is there that she doesn't let him into their house, even though he's been released from prison, but he can't get into the house where his friends are praying for him. This is Luke's attempt at humor. And last week, I asked you if you were singing. We looked at Paul singing in prison in Acts chapter nine, or 16. This week we're back in prison here in Acts chapter 12, this time with Peter. And the question isn't, are you singing, but are you laughing? How can we be moved to joy and even laughter in the midst of our sorrows and struggles? There's two points to answer that question. Number one, Herod's identity. And then secondly, the church's power. First of all, Herod's identity. Who exactly is Herod? It's actually a complex answer because there are several Herods throughout New, the New Testament. This, in Acts chapter 12, is Herod Agrippa. It's not the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6. That was Herod Antipas. If you remember, his daughter, his wife's daughter, actually danced before him and his drunken buddies, and as a reward to her dancing, he beheaded John the Baptist. That was this Herod's uncle. But there's another Herod, even. Herod the Great. This Herod's grandfather, and the Mark 6 Herod's father, and Herod the Great, you might remember, was the king at the time of Jesus' birth, and not a good man. 
Remember, the Magi are the one that told him about Jesus's birth, asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Which is a bad question to ask, a dumb question. And why? Because Herod the Great thought he was the king of the Jews. So he tries to use the Magi to deceive them, to find Jesus, not to worship him, but to kill him. And the Magi evade him and he can't kill Jesus. So he slaughters all of the baby boys in Bethlehem. He can't kill Jesus. So he kills everyone who's like Jesus, all of the innocent, the vulnerable. He murders God or he he can't murder God. So he murders those like God. And this is the family trait, regardless of which Herod that we deal with here in Acts chapter 12, our Herod murders an innocent man. And then he tries to murder another innocent man because violence was the prerogative of Kings in the ancient world. In verse one, it literally says that he threw out his hands to do harm. He threw them out to do evil. It's a common refrain throughout the Old Testament, talking about the most powerful people in the world. Most commonly it's translated, he stretched out his hands, just stretched out his hands to point, said a word or wrote a new law and sending thousands upon thousands of innocents to die. It happens throughout the scriptures. And we need to ask ourselves why it's still happening today. Because it is. Are, are our rulers that different today than they were in that day and age? William Willimon, author and theologian, doesn't think so. He wrote about this passage. He says, we too live in a time of almost religious reverence for the power of the state. We look to almighty state for our security, for our well-being, for our protection, and for the care of the vulnerable and needy in our society. We look to it for our ultimate loyalties. The state has become our most commonly accepted means of ensuring ourselves against the vicissitudes of life. No more true now in the midst of COVID and the ongoing pandemic. Like a God for us, the state holds the powers of life and death. Can we understand this little band of Christians huddled behind closed doors, fearful of the evil hand of Herod and his soldiers, incredulous that any power, even the power of God could prevail against such a hand. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying we should see ourselves in these Christians. We should see ourselves as, as fearful as them, as dependent and concerned and focused as them on their earthly leaders and rulers and what their earthly leaders and rulers are capable of. Even though we're not huddled behind locked doors, locking ourselves in still the amount of influence and control that our earthly rulers have over us is similar. Begging the question, who is your Herod? Who is your Herod? Doesn't have to be a politician. It might be. It could also be a boss, it could be a coach or a teacher, kids, as you go back to school. It could be a parent, it could be a friend, a lover, spouse, maybe a child. Even some children have that much influence over our families. It could be a pastor. I'm listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mark Hill, of Mars Hill. Have you heard of it? You know it? It's about this man named Mark Driscoll. He was the founding pastor of a well-known famous church called Mars Hill in the 1990s and 2000s became a mega church. And it is a disturbing podcast to listen to, especially for a pastor like me, uh, because Mark Driscoll was incredibly gifted. He was charismatic. Like few people in the world are incredibly, incredibly brilliant. And the church exploded in size right after he founded it. At one point they had 60 people on their media staff. I don't even know what that means. I mean, how in the world could that be possible? 
But episode after episode, you read of the church exploding in a different way, exploding relationally, because time and time again, they interview congregant after congregant or staff member after staff member being led or having been led by their pastor who ruled them like Herod here. And I think it's significant. I think it's very important that the scriptures never specify which Herod exactly it is who's stretching out his hand. Doesn't hear in Acts 12, not in Matthew 2, not in Mark 6. Never says which Herod specifically. And that makes that word more than just a name of one historical person. It makes it the name that is representative, not just of all the worst rulers in the world, but of the world itself of the fallen, broken world as we all know it and us within it. And it's a disturbing truth, but a truth nonetheless that we still have our Herods. We still have rulers like this. Alexander Lushenko, he's been in the news lately. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Mario Cuomo, he had a bad week. Mark Driscoll, others. We still have them because they still are representative of us. I've told you this time and time again. I'll continue to tell because it's important. We have to understand this in order to understand the Christian faith and to be a Christian. And that is there is a little Herod inside each of us. Years ago, I read a book by a man named Frederick Dale Bruner, and he significantly shaped how I read all of the scriptures by just saying this one comment. He said, in Herod, we see in person what theology calls original sin. Herod is not merely the gospel villain. He is every man. Herod teaches us that the reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. Thus Herod, though an extreme case, is not an isolated one. Herod is what I am deep down inside. That's disturbing. We need to be disturbed by it. Because the point is, is that sin is not insecurity. It's not failure. It's not weakness. Those things are a part of it. But sin is a power that resides deep down in every soul and presses us to do in our own ways what Herod does here in our passage. And what does he do? In verse 19, he punishes the soldiers ruthlessly who fail him. And then in verse 20, he provides bread for the people of Tyre and Sidon, but he makes them beg for it. And then in verse 21, seated on his throne in royal robes, he delivers them his word. So he gives, he gives out punishment. He, he provides food. He provides bread. He speaks. He holds the power of life and death. He gives bread. He gives his words. What's he doing? So many ways he's playing God here. And in fact, they, they shout out to him. It's the voice of a God and not a man. And he doesn't object. Did you notice that? He doesn't object at all because that's what he's after. He's after those words of pseudo praise. He seeks to get rid of God and any reminder of God so that he can take God's place. And so what about us? How do we do this? And who does it damage? How do we misuse our power, our position? Because you have power. You have power in a position. Our church does. People in our church do. People in this city does do. As a parent, as a spouse, as a boss, as a sibling, as a friend, as someone who's educated, as someone who's wealthy, as someone who's brilliant yourself or beautiful, athletically talented? Do you punish people for their failures? Because you can. Do you make people beg for what you can give them? Do you long for or work for people to bow down and to serve you, to pour out their life for you? Because that's Herod. That's Herod. Second point, 
The church is power. What power do we have to resist that? To resist our own sin and the world around us? And this answer is an easy one. It's as easy, actually, as the answer to the first question is complex. It's easy. It's a simple answer. It's a very hard answer. It's rare. And what is it? What's the answer in this passage? What bookends everything that happens? How, what bookends everything that happens to Peter in his deliverance? Very simply, prayer. In verse 5 and verse 12, Luke speaks of prayer. And everything that happens to Peter happens within those two mentionings. And here are two attributes of prayer from our passage that I want to point out to you. Number one, in verse five, it says that earnest prayer for him was being made to God. So the prayer here is earnest. For something to be earnest, it has to have a combination of sincerity, got to mean it, sincerity, but also intensity. The Greek word is literally to stretch out fully, to stretch out fully. And I like that image. Think about uh, the image of a rope stretched out with no slack in it. Dependent upon what that rope is attached to and how strong it is of that thing, whatever that thing is that it's attached to, there's great power coursing through a stretched out rope. Uh, one of my grandfathers was a farmer, rancher, uh, and I grew up with him never, never seeing uh, a full right ring finger. He had it torn off at one point. And what happened was there was a rope attached to a truck that was also attached to a load of hay, and he got his finger caught in a knot. And when that rope pulled tight. All that, the, the rope was fully stretched out. It had enough power in it because of the weight of the hay and the power of the truck to snap his finger right off at the knuckle. And that's like the prayers of these Christians here, fully stretched between the sovereign, unbounded, infinite strength of God and the unbearable burden of Peter's imprisonment, stretched out, earnest. But then also their prayer, secondly, is persistent. Do you notice the timing of our passage? That Peter here is arrested right before Passover begins. Much like Jesus, by the way. Friday night, he gets arrested. Passover begins Friday night. It ends Saturday night. Verse 6 says that Herod was about to bring him out. So presumably late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. But on that very night, our text says, Peter escapes. He's delivered. So Saturday night. And then Sunday morning before dawn, gate is still locked. He's at Mary's house knocking on the door. And so his deliverance, it, the entire episode begins Friday evening and doesn't end until Sunday morning. And notice it says that they're praying and never once does it mention them stop praying in that entire time period. It's persistent. Much like the widow in our gospel reading from Luke 18. This is a passage I really don't feel like I fully understand, but all I know is that she bothers this judge. She never stops bothering him. And this judge neither fears God nor cares anything for other people. And she bothers him into action. And what this tells us is not that God is like this judge. In fact, the very opposite is the point. God is not like this judge. And if this judge, this, this ungodly, unloving, uncaring judge can be moved into action by the persistence of a woman like this widow here, then how much more effective can your prayers be with God who cares so much about you, who cares far more about everybody else than himself? The point is bother God because our prayers with him can and will be effective in the persistence of those prayers. Jesus says he'll answer you speedily, verse eight. And we see that in Acts 12. So don't stop. Some of you have stopped. Some of you have stopped praying for certain things because 
You feel like you've gotten a definitive no. Maybe you did get a definitive no, and we do at times, but all too often we stop praying long before God gives us a definitive no to anything that we're praying for. And I know in saying all this, I also have to say that I know what you're thinking, some of you, and feeling. Because I feel, and I think it as well, and that is that when I, we read that word speedily in verse 8, it's painful for some of us. Because we've been praying, some of you have been praying like this widow, bothering God, continually coming to him. And, and your prayers have not been answered speedily. They've not been answered at all. And I know the suspicion potentially rises in us and we're, we're tempted to think God is not like this. God is actually like this judge. God doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about my prayers or whom I'm praying for. He doesn't care about me because if he cared about me, he cared about my prayers, then my friend would still be sick then my spouse wouldn't have died, then I'd be married, then I'd have a child, then I would have true friends, real friends. I wouldn't feel so alone. I'd have a better job. I wouldn't be so poor. I'd have a better marriage. My spouse wouldn't continue to be the way that he or she is. They wouldn't still be drinking or abusing alcohol, drugs, whatever. My child wouldn't still be in the place where I find my child. And we've all prayed prayers like that, prayers that weren't haven't been answered speedily. So what's the point of persistence in prayers like that? Let me ask you, would you have prayed so earnestly or so persistently without that ongoing need? Would you still be praying now? Because friends, the main point of prayer is not for God to give us stuff, even the stuff that we need, good things, good necessary things like justice, like healing, like a spouse, like a child. The point, the main point of prayer is not for God to give us those things, but for God to give us himself. And he will never refuse to give you himself in prayer as you pray. So don't stop praying because God is giving you himself through your prayers. And we read here that joy is the eventual result. According to verse 14, joy is the eventual result of these Christians' prayers. The joy comes suddenly, it comes surprisingly, it comes ironically. There's so much irony filling this passage from Luke. The irony begins at the very beginning of the passage in verse 3 and 4 with the mention that this all happened during Passover, which was the national celebration of liberation from earthly enemies. And here Peter is imprisoned when everybody else is celebrating being released from those who imprisoned them. And then verses six through 10, there's this disparity between the security surrounding Peter and the ease with which he escapes, with which he's delivered. There's two soldiers, each of him, them are chained to him. There's guards at the door. There's another guard, a set of guards outside the door, and then another guard outside that. And then there's an iron gate that just opens of its own accord. But then the gate won't open for Peter when he's at Mary's house, at his friend's house. He, he's left outside knocking on the gate and he can't get in to the very house where his friends are praying for him, it's meant to make us, make us smile. It's, it's meant to be joyful and playful. Luke writes with a joyfulness and a playfulness here. And why? How can he do that in a story of such sadness and difficulty and violence and loss? Well, he can in part because he knows what Isaiah 40 says, what we've read this morning as our Old Testament reading, that all flesh is grass. When the grass withers and the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, but the word of our God will stand forever. That happens here in Acts chapter 12. And the irony gives way to a great reversal where nothing is the same. In verse 20, verse 20 begins with Herod 
being begged for food. But verse 22, the passage ends with Herod being food. Did you notice that little detail of Luke? Food for worms. Begins with people begging food for him. He ends up being food. And then verse 24, he's, he, he has been speaking his word, but now in verse 24, his words have stopped because his breath has stopped because the breath of the Lord has blown over him. The point is nothing's the same in the end as it was in the beginning. And nothing is the same in the end as it was or as it felt or as it seemed in the middle for everyone praying. Everything gets flipped, everything gets reversed and nobody sees it coming. Nobody knows how it's going to happen. Nobody could have predicted it. Nobody could have imagined it. And this story, it's not just this story, it's your life too. It's your life, it's my life, it's our life. Our life as a church. This is what it's like following Jesus in this world, following a God that no one controls, no one can predict, no one can understand fully. And in the end, he always gives more justice than we could ever demand and more grace and kindness than we could ever imagine and more joy than we can ever know regardless how it looks in the middle or at the beginning. Luke writes Acts 12 this way because of that. He also writes it like J.R. Tolkien describes the wizard Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. I've read this quote to you before. It's been an important quote to me in my life, as strange as that sounds. But after, after a particularly horrible, terrifying experience, Pippin, a hobbit, he sees Gandalf Someone says something after this experience and Gandalf laughs, this deep, full, and kind of inappropriate laugh. And Tolkien writes, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. For the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry, yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. And that's this passage. That's how Luke writes it. A great joy beneath the words of care and sorrow, because that's this story. That's Peter's story. That's Luke's story. That's the story of Jesus. Luke writes the story of Peter like this because he's already lived it with Jesus. Because remember, Jesus was in prison at the time of Passover. And he was in prison when everybody else was celebrating their deliverance. He was in prison, but not under earthly enemies, but under greater enemies, the enemies of sin and death. And God didn't rescue him. God did not rescue him from death. He didn't walk out before death like Peter for you because God loves you that much. Jesus died under the penalty of those enemies that you might not have to. And then Jesus, three days later, like Peter, walked out gates of hell flung open like this gate here in Acts chapter 12 in order to give you himself, to be alive again, to give you his daily bread, our daily bread, that which we truly need, ultimately himself, to feed us on his very life. Even here, week after week, as we feed our souls upon his body and blood so that we might attend to his word, not as the voice of a man, but as the voice of God. So friends, please know that every part of this story, every piece of the irony, the reversal as a whole, it all gives us, it all leads us to and gives us Jesus. Jesus is as much a part of your story as he is a part of this one. I want you to hear me in that. That he is as much a part of your story as he is a part of this one, regardless of what has happened in your story, regardless of what is happening right now. So pray. That's why you can pray. 
because God moves in and through his people's prayer. Prayer is not impotent in the face of the world's power. Prayer is the power of the church in the world because it's the power of Jesus in the church. Prayer turns our theology into experience. And it can turn our suffering into joy, can turn our sorrows into laughter even. So pray, don't lose heart. Continue to pray. Amen. We pray for us. Father, we do ask this morning that you would give us the grace to see ourselves in these words. But beyond seeing ourselves in these words, we pray that you would give us the grace to see Jesus, to see him in these words, in this story, but also and ultimately in our story, that we have been caught up in who he is and all that he has done and continues to do in our lives and in this world. So assure us with that hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.